1 Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything at my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand, this day, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. For they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of, your, of our enemies that we may serve you. The Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, and now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear, fear the Lord and serve him, obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see the great things that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Leon Barber, and he used to be the chief of staff at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And he became very concerned when he went on a cruise ship. It was a South Seas uh, cruise and he noticed that the sanitation that they had on that cruise ship was much better than the sanitation in the hospital that he ran. So he became very convicted about that, and he went home from that cruise ship, and he tried to instill uh, better sanitation procedures. And the most simple procedure was getting doctors and nurses and administrators to wash their hands 
after seeing every patient any time they were soiled. And so he did everything that he could to try to get them to wash their hands regularly. He appointed a sanitation director, and the sanitation director would walk around the hospital, and any time he would see a doctor who was washing his or her hands, they would get a gift card for Starbucks. And they had all these incentive programs and emails to try to get them to wash their hands, but they could only get to about 80% compliance. Only about 80% of the doctors complied, despite whatever they, whatever they did. And this was a problem because they had to get to at least 90% or they were in risk of losing their accreditation. Not to mention the increase in infections and possibly preventable deaths that could have been caused by that. And so he came up with an idea. One day, 20 administrators and doctors were having a meeting after lunch. And then the chief epidemiologist at the hospital came in and he passed out these auger plates. And he told them to put their hand in these auger plates. The auger plates had this growing medium in there, and they put their hands in them, and then they took them to the lab and had them analyzed. The doctors and administrators were shocked to see that their hands were just covered in bacteria. And they, Dr. Uh, Dr. Bender took the, the worst picture of the worst uh, soiled doctor's hands of that bacteria, and he took that and he put that on the server of the hospital on the screensaver. So every time anybody logged into the computers of the hospital, they saw that picture of that bacteria. And they said after that, the compliance went up to close to 100%, and it stayed there. Because they saw the problem, they could see the bacteria, bacteria on their hands, and because they could see it, they knew they had to do something differently. Oftentimes, the, for change to occur in people's life, the first step that has to happen is that we need to realize that we need to change. Another story, there's a, uh, years ago, Procter & Gamble came up with this new product, which uh, today is called Febreze. And Febreze was a revolutionary product, and they thought it was going to be a gold mine. It was revolutionary because it was a product that not only covered bad odors, but it could chemically neutralize those odors. And so they were so excited about it, and they put millions and millions of dollars into advertising this product. The problem was, it didn't sell. It was a complete dud. It was sitting on the shelves of the stores. Nobody was interested in it. Nobody bought it. And they're scratching their heads thinking this is an amazing product. It can get rid of any kind of odor, and yet it's sitting on the shelves. Nobody's buying it. And so they hired some researchers to try to get to the bottom of why this product wasn't selling with such a good product. And so they started to figure out what the issue was when they visited a woman's home who had nine cats. And she didn't take very good care of those cats, and the house was very, very stinky. In fact, the researchers walked into the house and one of the researchers had to turn away and gagged because it was so overpowering, the smell of the cats. And then after talking to her for a little bit, they learned that this woman had no idea that there was any smell. She had no idea that her house stunk. And then they came to, came to the conclusion and the realization that the people who needed Febreze the most were so desensitized to their own smells that they didn't know that they needed it. They didn't know that there was a problem and so they didn't know they needed a solution. Change is going to occur. We need to, people need to realize that change must occur. And oftentimes in our lives we'll go through our lives just kind of doing what we do 
And unless something from the outside kind of shows us that we're going the wrong direction, then we'll keep going the direction that we're going. In the Old Testament, uh, God gave Israel the law. And one of the reasons that he gave Israel the law was to point people to Jesus and to point out the fact that change needed to occur. And God's word, the law of God, is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. It also does that today. And you think about the teachings of Jesus, and they point us and show us sometimes how far we fall short of what we need to be. I mean, when Jesus says to pray for those who persecute us, when he tells us to turn the other cheek, when he tells us not to worry, these things are difficult things. And when we read God's word, it shows us, it's kind of a litmus test that shows us where we fall short and shows us that we need to change. The Apostle Paul said, the, said that in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He said, what shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So God's law, God's word, shows us where we fall short. And just like Dr. Bender put up that picture of the bacteria on the screensaver so that everyone could see it and know that there needed to be a change. In this passage today, we're going to see that Samuel kind of puts Israel's sin on full display so that they realize that something has to change. He goes through the history of Israel and, see, and, and demonstrates how there's this pattern where Israel will be rescued, they'll be saved, and then they'll turn to idols. We see that in they were rescued from Egypt, and then in the wilderness they turn to idols, and then they cry out to God, and God delivers them. And he, he describes how he sent the judges, and then after the judges, then once again, here in the present, they call out for a king. They're not content with God to be their king. They're calling for someone to go out before them that they might be like the other nations. And so we see that in this passage, we see that Samuel points out two things. He points out generational sin, and he points out personal sin. He points out the generational sin that had been occurring throughout history, uh, Israel's history, and he points out those patterns of salvation and then turning to idols. And it all, he also points out the personal sin that they're committing in calling out for a king. And the same thing is true for us. As we read God's word, sometimes it will point out to us generational sin. Sometimes things that have been, or patterns that have been happening in our lives, in our families, for ages and ages. Because oftentimes those sin patterns repeat themselves. And maybe we don't even recognize that they're things that are not of God because they're just what we know. So it points out those things, but it also points out personal sins, the things that we're committing ourselves in the present. When we read the God's word, it shows us those things. But sometimes, even when we're confronted with those things, even when we're confronted with the need to change, even when we know that we're broken, something doesn't click with us. We just kind of keep doing what, we, what we're doing. And maybe we know in the back of our minds that something's wrong and something needs to change. But we silence that voice and choose not to think about it. And we think to ourselves, well, I'll deal with that tomorrow. Or I'll deal with that after I'm married, or after I get this new job, or once the weather breaks, I'll deal with this some other time in the future, and it doesn't click with us that we need to change now, today. And sometimes the only thing that can change us or spur us to change is a wake-up call. 
Sometimes that's hitting rock bottom. It could come in many forms. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be coming down with a debilitating or deadly disease. Could be overdosing. Could be a wife uncovering her husband's porn addiction. Might be getting arrested for drunk driving. It could be the creditors showing up on our doorstep and yet we have no money in our bank account. And, and there's situations in our life, wake-up calls that sometimes God gives us to show us that we need to change. And sometimes we'll just keep doing what we're doing until we get that wake-up call, that, that jolt, where we hit rock bottom and God's like, you got to change. Something has to give. And we see that in this passage. We see that in the previous uh, chapter that it seems like everything is going okay. It seems like Israel is in control. They had asked for a king, they had received a king, and then Saul goes out and he fights for the people of Israel. That's what they wanted. They wanted someone to go out and fight for them. And so they don't, he, they don't necessarily listen to the voice of Samuel and the voice of God who say that what they're doing is evil and turning away from the Lord. They don't listen to that. They think, well, things are going well, so we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And they need a wake-up call to show them that the direction they're headed is not correct. And the wake-up call that's given in the text is uh, the sending of thunder and lightning. Now, this is interesting because in the, during the wheat harvest in Israel, May or June, it was very, very rare that rain would occur. And yet, Samuel prays to God, and they hear the thunder, the rain comes down. And not only was this kind of a terrifying thing that Samuel could pray and affect the weather, but there was also likely some fear that because of this rain it could destroy the tender crops, the wheat harvest. And so after this wake-up call, this sign where they realize God is serious, what Samuel's saying is true, it says in the text that they're terrified of Samuel and terrified of God. And then they realize, they come to the realization that they have gone wrong, they confess their sin, and they pray to, they tell Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil. And again, remember God and Samuel had warned Israel how the direction that they were going was not good, and asking for a king, trying to replace God in their lives. And yet they don't listen until this wake-up call comes. But finally, when it does, they realize the evil of their ways. They realize that something needs to change. And they call out to Samuel to intercede to God on their behalf. And then after that, they have two choices. Once they acknowledge their sin, once they realize the direction that they've been going is wrong, they have two choices. They can choose to either live in their past or they can choose to change their past. Those are the same two choices that we have. When we realize that what we've been doing is wrong, when we realize that there are parts of our lives that are broken, there's two choices we can make. We can live in our past or change our past. If we live in our past, we buy into the lies that the enemy gives us. The enemy bombards us with thoughts like, you're a hypocrite. You'll never change. You'll always be this way. Or he'll, he'll tell us, it's, it's not worth changing. This life isn't worth living. You might as well just keep doing what you, you're doing and live the way that you've been living. And then we do that and we just keep those patterns going. And that's where Satan wants to keep us. He wants to keep us doing right this exact thing that we're doing. Verses 20 to 21 again says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord 
but serve the Lord with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. Samuel says, don't be afraid. You have done wrong, but because you don't turn to idols now. Because when we realize that we've done things that are wrong, when we realize that our past is not what it should be, sometimes Satan will come and he'll try to heap that guilt and condemnation on us. And he'll try to make us feel worthless and make us feel like we're in a rut that we can never get out of. And he wants us to then turn to idols to comfort our hearts. That we feel guilty, we feel broken, and then we, he wants us to turn to these idols to try to make us feel better, at least for a moment. That's where Satan wants to keep us. And so we live apart from God in our sin and we don't change. But God has a different plan for us. God can change our past. Verses 24 to 25 says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away. The people of Israel can make a choice that day to serve the Lord. Despite what has happened in their past, they can make the decision to follow after God and God will forgive them. Verse 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. We serve a God who can change our past. 1 John 1.9 says that uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. But you might say, I have a, quite a past. I've done a lot of things wrong. How could God really change my past? Well, a few years ago, there was a program called Memory Hackers. It was on PBS. And in that program, they des described how scientists are able to remove thoughts from people's minds. It's not that they can go in and specifically take out and, and do away with a thought completely, but they have the ability to kind of lessen the trauma of those thoughts. There's a number of studies that have been done related to this. See, when you have a memory, when, you, when something happens to you, you'll remember that event if you occasionally kind of go back to it. You have to kind of occasionally review that if you're going to remember the event. And often what happens is there's a process, psychological process called uh, reconsolidation. And so something happens to you, and then later after the fact you think about what happened, and then oftentimes you can add details or add emotions to that memory, and as you do that, it makes the memory stronger. So for example, let's say that you're in a car accident, a really minor car accident, but it was a kind of a close call. You're not hurt or anything, um, but it's a close call. And so you're fine, you walk away unscathed, but then after that event, you start to think about it, and you start to think, what if it went differently? You start to picture the car and the broken glass. And as you do that, your heart rate kind of increases and you start to get warm. Maybe your palms get sweaty and you're kind of adding that fear emotion to that memory. And as you do that again and again, it strengthens that fear emotion related to that memory. And if it got to a really extreme level, I mean, a person could get to the point where if they get that fearful and associate it with a car accident, even just seeing a car could make them fearful. So that's the process of reconsolidation when we think about memories. And there were some studies that were done that were fascinating related to this. 
There's one study from uh, the University of the Netherlands. And uh, in this study, they formed three groups. And all of the people who were part of these groups were afraid of spiders. And so they had a placebo group that uh, just, they didn't do anything except for they brought this spider into the room uh, inside of a jar and they showed it to them, brought it right up next to them. There's another group that they gave this drug called propanol. And propanol is a drug that suppresses norepinephrine, which is kind of the fight or flight response. And so for some, they just gave that drug propanol, didn't show them the spider. And then the third group, they gave the drug propanol, which, you know, again, negates the norepinephrine. And then they showed them this jar with the spider. And what they discovered was very interesting. They discovered that the people with the placebo and the people who were just given the propanol, not shown the spider, their levels of fear remained exactly the same. But the people who were given the propanol and who were exposed to that spider, they found that within days, those people weren't afraid of spiders anymore. They found that those people were even willing to touch or hold this tarantula because that fear response was removed when they were in the presence of that spider. There's another study that was done that was similar where that same drug, propanol, was given to victims of trauma for 10 days. And after taking that drug, the victims were less stressed and fearful when they described the traumatic event. According to one of the researchers in charge of the study, they said it left the conscious part of the memory intact so that they could still remember all the details, but without being overwhelmed by the memory. I think that's what God does with our past. He changes how we view it. He changes how we interact with it. When we think about the past, maybe there's things that we've done that we regret. Maybe there's brokenness that just kind of grieves our heart. And we remember those things, but God can take away the sting of those things. Those things no longer need to overwhelm us. And we might still have that regret or uh, understanding that we've wasted some of that time, but it no longer needs to overwhelm us. And just like that propanol removed that fear of spiders, our fear and our worry about those things can literally melt at the foot of the cross when we realize that Jesus has paid the penalty for all those things. And not only that, Jesus can take us where we're at. He doesn't have to undo our past. He doesn't ask us to undo our past. I mean, the people of Israel have done something wicked in asking for a king. And again, the, we talked you know, previously about how it's not just simply the asking for a king. It's why they were asking for it. They wanted someone who essentially would replace God in their lives. And so they do that. And God could have said, all right, if you're going to repent, you need to undo what you just did. You need to get rid of your king. Do away with him. But God doesn't do that. He says, from this day forward, if you serve me, if your king serves me, it will go well with you. Verse 14, it says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. God says, all you need to do is serve me today. You don't have to undo your past. We can't undo our past. Of course, if there's a situation where we have the opportunity to 
make amends or seek for forgiveness, of course we should do that. But God doesn't call, call us to try to undo the past. He calls us to serve him today, from this day forward. See, this passage reminds us. It reminds us, don't let what you have done in the past prevent you from serving God today. Don't let what you've done in the past prevent you from serving God today. We serve a God of new beginnings. We serve a God whose mercy is new every morning. And as believers in Jesus, our past doesn't need to define us. There's a woman in Oregon, and uh, she robbed a bank. And she robbed a bank for a very interesting reason. She wasn't interested in the money at all. She went into a bank, and she had uh, a little piece of cardboard. And on the cardboard, she said, I have a gun. Give me all your money. And so they gave her thousands and thousands of dollars of money. And she took that money and she went out on the sidewalk and she threw it up in the air. And as people walked by, she offered it to them. Said, do you want some money? She wasn't interested in the money at all. And then when the police officer arrived, she allegedly replied and said, I just, wanna, I just robbed the bank. I want to go back to prison. She said, I just robbed the bank. I want to go back to prison. I mean, think about that, that someone who had their freedom wants to return to a place of, of darkness, of prison. And it's crazy to us to think about that, but I think sometimes we do something similar. Rather than embrace the grace and new life that God offers us, we run back to the prison. Because even though the prison is dark, even though there's confinement, even though we're not happy there, it's what we know. It's comfortable. It doesn't require us to change. And so we run back to that prison even though Jesus offers us life and Jesus is outside crying out, come out. You can experience freedom today. You don't have to be defined by your past. You can serve God today. So there's that reminder not to let the past prevent us from serving God today. But there's an also a secondary reminder in this passage. And that reminder is if God doesn't judge, define us by our past, we must not define other people by their past. If God doesn't define us by our past, we must not define other people by their past. Look what it says in verse 23. Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. I mean, have you ever committed that sin? Have you ever committed the sin of believing that someone is too far from grace? Have stopped interceding, stopped trying, because you think in your mind that other person is too broken, they're too stubborn, they're too wicked, they're too beyond repair to keep praying for them. Ladies and gentlemen, the scriptures remind us again and again that there's nobody that's too far from God's grace. There's nobody that's beyond repair. And that God can change us. And Paul says that he was the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, and yet God rescued him. God can change anyone. And then when God does change people, we need to be careful that we don't hold their past over them. I mean, sometimes as a church, we can, not this particular church, but as believers, we can work for the enemy in reminding people of their past, reminding them of who they used to be. You know, and sometimes these little gossip circles get started where it's like, hey, do you know that person over there? Do you know that they committed adultery? You know, you know, you know that person over there? You know that 
I, I, I've seen him at the bar, and I know that they, he gets drunk every night. You know that person over there, you know, I used to work with them, and uh, she was really, really dishonest and really nasty. It's like, okay, well, maybe God changed them. Maybe God made them new. But sometimes we can get caught up on other people's past and hold that over them and not realize that if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. That we can experience life. We can be forgiven. In God's mind, his, the, there's nobody who's beyond his repair. Lamentations 3, 21 to 26 is this. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says the, my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. We serve a God of new beginnings, a God of forgiveness, a God who makes a way, the light in the darkness. We serve the God who can take away the sting of the past. And the question that we must ask ourselves is, will we allow God to take our past? Will we give him our past today? Will we choose to treat others like God has treated us, making the choice not to define them by their past? Because there's nobody that's too far from God's grace. There's nobody that's beyond repair when they come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that even while we were yet sinners, you died on the cross for our sins. And we thank you that there's none of us who are too far from your grace and your love. We thank you that because of your cross, because of the blood that you shed for us, you can take away the sting of our past. That even though we know that we've done things that are wrong, that are not pleasing to you, that have caused harm to other people, that you can take away the sting of those memories. And we thank you for allowing us to see people around us as new creations. We pray that we wouldn't define them there by their past, but define them by their future and what you're making them to be. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.